0: Hello, and welcome to the EHE Busting podcast series, and thank you to everyone for listening. I'm Gareth Tucker, the CEO of a Medical Communications Group, and I'll be your host for this podcast. This is the fourth in a comprehensive five-part series funded by the European Haematology Association discussing haematology diseases, diagnosis, assessment, and treatment in older adults. The purpose of the podcast series is to share up-to-date information with patients and physicians about haematology in older adults. To access the other podcasts and associated resources from this series, please visit the EHA campus at www.ehaweb.org. The topic for this podcast is haematological changes in older adults, and I'm joined by Professor Monica Engelhardt as our expert for this podcast. Professor Engelhardt, would you like to introduce herself and your background and expertise.
1: Yes, thank you very much, Gareth, for the nice introduction. I'm uh, a attending physician at the University of Freiburg. I deal with multiple myeloma patients also with the study unit at our hospital. We have approximately 400 multiple myeloma patients that come to our site and I'm specifically interested in elderly aspects of myeloma and its disease and uh, possibly certainly improvement uh, whilst the disease is better known and better treatable.
0: Thank you, Professor Engerhardt. So to begin this podcast, we have some topics for discussion that have been sent to us by Anita Waldmann, who leads the Leukemia Hilfe Rhein-Main patient support group in Germany. And Anita has asked, geriatric assessment is used to help physicians recognise frailty and guide treatment decisions in elderly patients. In your clinical experience, how receptive are patients to undergoing these tests and understanding their outcomes?
1: Yeah, I would say it depends really how excessive or extensive you want to do those testings. Um, At our side, um, they very much agree to those tests, even if they are a little more in-depth. What we have looked at for years now is a specific myeloma score that is being scored within seconds. So it looks at organ function, knosk performance status, frailty, is the patient falling, Self-sufficiently um, looked at at home, can he/she do whatever they like at home, or are they dependent on someone? And uh, age plus cytogenetics are included in the score. And we also have a home page where you can uh, score those issues uh, very quickly. That helps you with the definition, and that is done. So. Whether you do this whilst the patient is visiting or being seen by you or whether you do this when you have seen the patient and do a workup of uh, how treatment should be modified or done, uh, it's up to you. Or we also use that in our multiple myeloma board. But the patient always agrees. So this is not at all of a problem. It's only if you tell those issues to
0: colleagues that they fear it might be too complicated. Interesting. Thank you. So in your experience, how interested are hematology patients in connecting with other patients? What do they perceive as being the the benefits of this?
1: It it certainly depends on the patient. So there are patients who are very supportive of uh, self-advocacy groups, so they like them and they like the people, they like to be in interaction. They have friendship with different patients and they feel supported and also sort of being looked at and they can share their fears and sorrows and and joys and experience and whatever. And there are some patients who dislike this or they are already well connected or they have family and friends and they're, use this group as their sort of small support groups. However, in my experience, also looking at wider um, self-support groups, as Anita Waldmann has one or the uh, Deutsche Support Group of the Krebshilfe in Bonn. And they are very much stretched out, so they have all the um, political um, issues that are needed and they are well connected with politics and also with industry. So it does help um, to have those in, 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 in your clinics and being in contact with them to reach out and uh, achieve higher goals. So I think self-support groups are very important. And actually at our comprehensive cancer center, we have a professorship specifically for this issue to really foster and uh, let those self-support groups uh, grow. However, I mean, they really have to support patients. So I have, for example, one example where a patient is approaching a self-support person and who acknowledges that certain uh, hospitals or physicians, et cetera, et cetera, in his or her experience are not very good, et cetera, et cetera. And that at the very beginning of your disease is um, sometimes also very devastating. So it has to be of help. It has to be of support. And it's
0: certainly not covering at all. But uh, to my experience, they are extremely helpful. Okay, great. So it sounds as though it's very much around the, the right type of support and the right opportunities for, for experience sharing. Um, if we move a little more broadly then, how has the prognosis for hematological disorders changed over time, particularly for elderly patients?
1: Yeah, there have been plenty of uh, publications recently supporting the notion that also elderly patients have improved in their prognosis. And I think this is very supportive uh, of the studies and uh, exchanges and uh, programs and uh, looking at those elderly patients that this has probably occurred. So there's a publication from Kumar from the Mayo Clinic stating that even patients over 60 years, but you might argue that uh, those patients are not really that old. And um, so beyond 70 years and 80 years would also be a great benefit if those in their prognosis would also improve. But at least this publication states that um, patients over 60 years have improved in their prognosis as patients have always improved over time um, below 60 years. So that was really a very important publication. And I think that uh, we are trying to have more studies where specifically non-transplantable patients are being put in and where um, all of us are looking that the age is Above 70 years, that those studies are being increasing is also very important. So, the prognosis has improved also in elderly patients. The definition is, you know, how the cutoff is being defined. It has been over 60 years, but it should be really over 70 years. And uh, you can also rightly state to a patient that they will survive normally approximately three to five years, if they are lucky, also five to 10 years. Um, with the disease as much as they endure being treated because that is also being done more specifically also in elderly patients, that treatment is going longer than only for two or four cycles. And uh, if they are tolerating that treatment is inducing
0: good effects, but also side effects um, might occur. You, you've obviously touched there on the the ability to treat for longer, the endurance of treatment. Is is there anything else that's behind this um, improvement in prognosis in these uh, older patients? I guess also acknowledging what you said about the, the the age cutoff point as well. Is there anything beyond that that treatment and l- length and endurance that's that's leading to that improvement?
1: I mean, one important issue is certainly that uh, treatment variability has changed tremendously. So there are more treatment protocols. There are more options. Um, What you can do in elderly um, patients with multiple myeloma, so there are tumor boards where you can discuss this and find the best option. I think this is very helpful. It's also um, the understanding that you can dose reduce in the very beginning and then increase the dose whilst the patient is responding, hopefully, and also tolerating the treatment to the utmost efficacy and least side effects occurring. And there's also the notion that if you don't want to reduce treatment upfront, and there's a very important publication by the Turin group, by Alessandra La Roca, that you can then dose reduced whilst treatment are going on. So what they have, for example, looked at was lenalidomide uh, for specific cycle numbers in uh, one half of the patient, not reducing the dose, trying to go on with lenalidomide and dexamethasone. And the other treatment group, which was approximately 100 patients also, they after nine cycles um, had a reduced dose of lenalidomide and also dexamethasone was stopped entirely. And what they could see is that not only efficacy of treatment was preserved, but also side effects occurring and uh, quality of life issues then also evolving were better with the reduced dose and without dexamethasone um, being performed in that specific RD treatment, which was the first trial, um, as it was called, looking at lenalidomide and dexamethasone in elderly patients as compared to melphalan, lenalidomide and dexamethasone or prednisone, which was the former standard. Um, I would say this is a very important uh, trial being performed. Probably it would have been even wider, wiser if they had planned the study upfront, less len and dexamethasone already in the very beginning as compared to full dose, and they would have even seen a greater effect, but this study needed to be supported by industry. And that was probably not what they could do, although this would have been even a better study. And that is the other issue. We have to sort of invent studies that are clinically meaningful but are also supported and can be done. So uh, the uh, university hospitals don't have endless monies, nor has government. And uh, we nevertheless want to do meaningful and good studies um, that help our
0: patients within the next years. That middle ground of feasibility, yes, of course. Yes. Um, if if we move more to the to the outcomes perspective, why are the outcomes typically not as good in elderly patients with hematological malignancies when compared with younger patients?
1: Yeah, I think there are tons of issues behind this. So uh, one is uh, is the patient really in the mood of uh, fighting and tolerating whatever uh, comes and uh, what uh, might be difficult to to foresee or to undergo. Um, if you try to motivate patients and they have this drive within them, it, it, this might be no problem. However, organ function is another issue. So is the patient coming to you only having multiple myeloma or if that patient is elderly, has also heart problems, lung problems, gastrointestinal problems, renal a problem or other issues. Um, so that also on those organ function, uh, you have to adjust or adapt your treatment. And then it's also the sort of different environment. So the body with all this function that is slower um, metabolism is not as in the younger patient. Um, so that uh, treatment endurance or um, treatment, uh, Easiness is more difficult in elderly patients than in younger. Uh, so, all these issues uh, make it more difficult for um, us, class D patient, and the uh, um, accompanying uh, partner to really tolerate and, and
0: perform the treatment. Sure. You touched on things that the patient drive, the ability to tolerate treatment, frailty, other conditions. I guess from your experience, what are the most important things to consider in an aging patient with a hematological malignancy?
1: Yeah, one issue is certainly, um, is that patient uh, quite fit or intermediate or frail, as we call it? So can we have an easy test or Uh, function uh, scale that tells us quite objectively this patient uh, will endure treatment quite easily, or um, should this be done inpatient or outpatiently? Um, Should I look at the patient more often, um, or is this easygoing? So if you have defined this patient is If he, she is older, um, intermediate or frail, you want to be a little slower and more carefully applying your treatment. If the patient is fit, you might be able to do whatever you like. And this will go across uh, without any problem, side effects and lead to the efficacy you would like to see. Um, You also have to sort of um, see how well the patient understands the treatment. So uh, do you need uh, patient flows? Um, Do you need a partner who understands this also? Does somebody else have to look at the patient? Do you have to sort of uh, start in your clinic or in your uh, private practice and see the patient every day, which is very difficult uh, and quite cumbersome in in time issues? And uh, is that person able to do uh, one drug or two drugs or three drugs or even four drugs? And if complications arise that you try to foresee as much as you can, is that patient also able to come to your site immediately to solve this problem and then uh, undergo treatment again? So if all those issues are pretty clear, which do evolve over time typically because the patients really get their expert in their disease and also how they tolerate and how this should be done and they read and ask you a lot of questions, then whilst time are progressing this gets better and better better, so it's no longer a problem often. But there might be also very rare side effects so those Mm -hmm. need to be addressed also. And then it's also does the patient like to speak and does the physician also like to speak about problems or is this all easygoing? So you have a problem. No, then you go out of my department again. And then there's not even a hint of a problem that can be discussed. So it's also a time issue. Um to, you need to see the patient for five minutes, or can you see the patients for 15 minutes or 30 minutes? So it's typically that we at university hospitals are being claimed that we have tons of time. So uh, we can certainly see a patient for one hour or two hours, whatever. We have all sorts of support programs, uh, which we certainly have, um, And in private practice, this can never be the case. So all those issues of supporters are a little more difficult uh, to perform. Nevertheless, also private practice has now acknowledged um, that they need to have support strategies and support persons behind Um, their own uh, activities and they can help tremendously uh, to really make sure that a treatment is being done and all problems are being solved. So I think those are all steps that are very important.
0: Mm, Thank you. You you talked about the importance of modifying treatment approaches given the frailty of of individual patients. How does frailty impact the treatment outcomes?
1: Yeah, frailty might uh, at the uh, at the worst, lead to um, that you do not do any treatment at all, or you give up treatment uh, very prematurely. Uh, that might be wise in a patient we have, for example, published, um, where we have seen a amyloidosis patient who was very frail and uh, very fragile also with a very high myeloma comorbidity index, which is the higher the worst. And uh, we treated her and she did respond by all biological and myeloma and amyloidosis markers. So the sort of objective response was uh, quite rewarding. Nevertheless, her frailty, her performance, her um, how she moved at home, how she uh, self uh, perceived her um, quality of life deteriorated um, because uh, she didn't tolerate treatment as much as she should have. So we adjusted treatment. And when this did not improve at all, we also decided in a circle of all experts um, being asked and in our multiple myeloma tumor board, that we didn't want to continue treatment, which was also her desire. So there are frailty issues and how this does improve over time or even not um, does help because this may make you um, come to the right decision. And because we found this frustrating on the one hand, but also the right decision on the other hand, We did publish this because we thought this was important for the community. Um, But frailty can also improve. And we have also recently published this, um, that uh, frailty is certainly also induced by the myeloma disease itself. So if, for example, the performance status and frailty um, is improving, because uh, bone pain is no longer there, bone has subsided to the treatment of uh, breaking and inducing uh, pain and deterioration of the patient, then the patient can walk in, uh, does not need a stick, and uh, performance is much, much better. So that helps also to then increase treatment again, and also, for example, not using one drug alone, but saying, now I can use two drugs or even three drugs. Um, so this is extremely helpful. And we have seen this, especially in patients who are responding well. So to achieve more than a partial response or at least a partial response, which means that 50% of the myeloma disease is decreasing, is getting down, is uh, coming down or in patients below the age of 70. So in elderly patients above the age of 70, it also occurred, but to a lesser extent. So that was our age cutoff. And you could also do this with over 90-year-old patient, but our group of patients was so low that we didn't do those uh, statistical analyses anymore. But the older the patients get, the lesser, and that is frailty again in organ function, the patient sort of grows up, uh, blossoms again, and is not 80 anymore, but 20. So we are going not through such a river where we go in old and come out young. So that that is not what mal- multiple myeloma treatment can perform, but that the patient gets better and that can be reached. So I think that this, this is important
0: message. Interesting cases, interesting examples. Thank you. I mean, are there any principles or or things that can be done, broadly speaking, to compensate for worsening function in, in older patients?
1: Yeah, certainly a a partner is always helpful or a family member who is accompanying the patient. Um, Also in COVID times, uh, we have opened our hospital and outpatient facilities again so that they can join, so they can talk together and try to understand the messages uh, better and try to uh, perform all those recommendations you have given. It's also sort of supportive given by, for example, um, self-support groups or our um, nurses, nursing support. So they also speak with patients. Um, We also had special multiple myeloma nurses who come around and, and try to solve those questions that have not been enough covered by a physician. Uh, It's also those regular meetings where those patients in self-support groups speak about uh, what they understand or they don't understand or what they found helpful. And I try to always encourage them to speak about the good things, not only complain about the bad things that they probably cannot change. And it's certainly also if the patient sees that he, she responds, that's also uh, very, very helpful because that makes them move along. And if you try to find answers to um, their problems or their organ function impairment, how this can be solved. So the interdisciplinarity of also having orthopedic physicians, um, also having uh, radiation specialists, um, pain managers, um, radiologists, um, all those moving around the patient uh, in a larger group of myeloma experts is always helpful. We also have a sport group. Uh, We're doing a sort of sport intervention study where we looked at a randomized uh, cohort of uh, patients who are being Uh, treated with sport activities um, of uh, running around so it's not jogging, it's just uh, moving along uh, whether that is by foot or by bicycle or other means, and also um, using strengths on your larger muscles, which is arms and legs, and this two or three times a week, which is the WHO recommendation of 150 minutes per week of sport activities and compare those patients with sport intervention with those who are doing the activity as usual and see whether patients are profiting in terms of myeloma um, treatment response, myeloma treatment endurance, um, depression, um, how they feel their quality of life if, is evolving, how often they come into hospital, et cetera. And there has been just a very recent publication in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is really the highest journal uh, round that we have to read. And they looked, I think, at approximately 350 elderly patients with heart problems, so heart disease. So they were uh, heavily heart compromised. So, for example, after um, heart ache or heart disease or coronary heart disease and um, myocardial infarction. And they also trained those patients uh, very moderately, and they perceived very rewarding aspects that really improvement in quality of life and performance of daily function was occurring. And my prediction is, and and I'm sure this is correct, this is not only true for patients with heart disease and myocardial infarction, it's also true for uh, tumor patients, it's also true for multiple myeloma patients. And some years ago there was sort of the notion that multiple myeloma patients, because of those osteolytic diseases, you cannot perform any sports activities on, which is certainly incorrect. But you you have to look that osteolysis are not being increased, or there is any breakage of bone, or that they have to undergo more operations because uh, something is occurring. So accidents uh, have to be avoided. But those intervention studies I think are also very important, but they, they are certainly money-wise challenging as well. So we have to have enough support
0: that we can perform those studies for our patients. Interesting, thank you. A final topic, clearly the, the piece on everyone's lips at the moment, we're in the middle of a, a global pandemic. Everyone is inundated with news about COVID-19. Um, Are patients with hematological malignancies more vulnerable to COVID-19 and and what can be done to mitigate that that risk?
1: Yes, this is also a very important question. So the easy answer is uh, hematologic and any cancer patients are more vulnerable to COVID and they probably also get a little sicker. Nevertheless, I have to say. We also looked at uh, hematologic and specifically cancer and multiple myeloma patients at our site, as well as in Germany, and our um, results were very rewarding. So we looked at a few, which was only 21 multiple myeloma patients in the very early pandemic of the first wave in Germany from 10 comprehensive cancer centers, and none of those patients died. So that was a very good message and they went through uh, the COVID infection uh, quite easily with all the support that the German system offers to them. So um, antibiotic treatment, um, all medication that were available at that time, um, putting them into hospital, having a one by one support of uh, physicians as well as nurses. So a very uh, large supportive initiative that was helpful for our cancer patients. We also did a side-by-side comparison of very, very extremely well-matched cancer and non-cancer patients with both COVID, and we saw a similar outcome. So necessarily speaking, that patients with cancer and multiple myeloma always have a worse outcome and are at specific risk for COVID is probably not true in our experience. Our answer to why this is the case is uh, whilst different systems are not comparable. So in, uh, for example, New York, the pandemic was totally differently organized than in Germany, and also sort of how much uh, support was um, being prepared and also issued on those patients was very well managed in Germany, I would say. And also, um, our patients are very sort of following the rules. So they use masks, um, they look at hygiene, they don't wave their hands, they don't do any hugging. So they are very uh, careful of what they do. And they also use their supportive medication, which are antibiotics and also antiviral prophylaxis whilst they are on treatment. So that was probably also helpful. Um, nevertheless, I think we have learned so much now and the vaccination has, has started. Our patients are very well following um, the vaccination recommendations. So I would say in Germany, They have very, very few multiple myeloma patients that I oversee, but I'm also a strong believer and supporter of vaccinations um, that has not not undergone um, the vaccination twice. Uh, We are talking now about the third vaccination starting in September. So I think those are helpful issues to really say, can we open the hospitals even to a larger extent? Can we probably also sometimes work without those masks anymore? Because it is very strenuous and very sort of hard to talk all the time um, to a patient for hours with this strong mask on. And uh, it's also difficult to sort of understand and uh, they are sometimes fearful of uh, getting nearer and those 150 meters, although I would say this patient is being vaccinated, I'm being vaccinated, um, ventilation is going on, uh, masks are being uh, um, put on. How much do we still have to do uh, to get over this pandemic? So it's a very big issue. And uh, they are also... Um, elections going on in Germany. So I think there's a bit of a fear to um, do too much opening because uh, some might oppose to this. Um, but I would be a friend of opening a little more and uh, to a larger extent, but certainly also trying to vaccinate if I may dream 100% um, of all those who are working with patients
0: and also certainly our patients themselves. Thank you very much for those insights. Um, That brings us to the end of this podcast. And thank you very much indeed to Professor Monica Engelhardt for her participation and for her excellent insights on this podcast on hematological changes in older adults. Thank you also to everyone for listening. As a reminder, this is the fourth podcast in a series of five. To access the other podcasts in this series, along with the associated resources, please do visit the EHA campus at www.ehaweb.org. And please do join us again for the next in the EHA myth-busting series. Thank you for listening.